0: As a player, I've never experienced a locker room like that period. And, and I'm not talking about just after that game, but throughout the year. Uh, that was a special locker room. It was a special bond between all of my teammates and, and with our team. It just was one of those locker rooms that I, I don't think will ever be duplicated. And uh, it's a shame that we couldn't end it the way that we wanted to end it. But uh, after that game, it was It was just such an emotional Roller coaster because you, you know, you're sitting there thinking that your chances to win a slam and then you end up pulling it out and you understand we've got another week to fight. And, um, you know, like I said, it didn't end up the way we wanted to, but, uh, that, that locker room was a special bond and I think every guy in that locker room understands how much that bargain meant for us, uh, as far as to keep our, our legacy going.
1: episode of our five-part series looking back at the minnesota vikings miracle 2017 season in this episode we focus on the lead-up to the vikings matchup in the playoffs with the new orleans saints the events that led to the minneapolis miracle and then their loss in philadelphia and all that came after and joining me for this final episode for pro football focus eric eager hi eric how are you
0: you know, all things considered, doing well. Excited to talk a little 2017 Vikings.
1: All right, so we got to start before we get into the Vikings matchup with the Saints at U.S. Bank Stadium. The week before, January 7th, 2018, and how we got to the point where the Vikings were playing the Saints and eventually playing the Eagles in the NFC Championship because there are some surprising results and events that helped us get there. And we start with New Orleans and Carolina, And the Carolina Panthers got one of the gutty performances of Cam Newton's career where he nearly led them back to beat the New Orleans Saints, had the ball in his hands at the end of that game, and New Orleans ultimately holds on and wins that game. And then the day before that, in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Rams, who brought in the best offense in the NFL, Sean McVay had taken Jared Goff and made him one of the best quarterbacks in the league, and Todd Gurley's running all over everybody, and yet the Rams offense went completely stagnant. Atlanta had gotten hot after they had lost to the Minnesota Vikings, and the Falcons come away with a 26-13 win, and Go to Philadelphia to play Nick Foles and the Carson Wentzless Eagles, and and I, I think that both of these results are interesting for for different reasons. I mean, one is New Orleans had already lost at U.S. Bank Stadium, so I don't think the Vikings felt tremendously scared of New Orleans coming to U.S. Bank Stadium. But they had lost to Carolina, and Cam Newton had put on a special performance in Carolina where he had a huge run to set up the game-winning score. And then it sparked a debate of if you're Vikings fans, would you rather play Nick Foles on the road or have Matt Ryan come to your building? And of course, this debate sounds funny now, but that was the conversation leading up. So what do you remember from that first round that set up what we had in Vikings and Saints and eventually Vikings Eagles?
0: Yeah, it was interesting because the the Rams were, you know, a team that, you know, is sort of you see it every year you see a team that sort of emerges out of nowhere they win a kind of a weak division and they play a team kind of a down team the following year right the falcons went from being the the nfc's representative in the super bowl the year before to being you know just a wild card team but Obviously, it showed in that first playoff round that the Falcons were much more prepared to play a playoff game than the Rams. I think there were something like six-point underdogs in that game on the road. Uh, we know now that you know Los Angeles isn't the greatest you know home field advantage for the Rams currently, uh, and they just outclassed them. There were fumbles on punts. There were just you know Matt Ryan played pretty well, and even you know that Falcons team, which was snake bitten oftentimes offensively, were able to score enough points uh, to outpace, uh, Sean McVay's crew. Uh, that was, that was an interesting one. I think with the, the New Orleans game, it was just one of those games where New Orleans sort of stopped playing defense and held on for dear life. And we've seen that a number of times, especially in that rivalry. Uh, but it almost bit them with Cam Newton coming back. Uh, and you know, I think they, I think the saints were something like six or seven point favorites and you know, they, uh, the, the Panthers covered that, but didn't end up getting the win. And,
1: and that will be one where people remember Cam Newton Uh, getting hit hard many times during that game and continuing to grind through and at one point having to leave the game for a play or two and come back in and and nearly pull off a win. And if you were the Vikings at that point, you probably didn't want to see that version of Cam because he was sort of flipping into unstoppable mode as, as opposed to a New Orleans team that had not proven, like you mentioned, that their defense was up to snuff. Now, their defense over the the following years would improve and become more dangerous, but to that point, they were still a purely offensive team that with the way the Vikings' offense had been rolling, you felt like they could win. Now, on the other side, on January 13th, the Eagles play the Atlanta Falcons. Now, this is a game that I think about all the time, Eric. You have Nick Foles throws a ball for a, an obvious interception it bounces off an Eagles player to his own guy who makes a catch and sets up uh, I think a field goal and Atlanta is just their offense completely no-showing in Philadelphia. The Eagles' defense was spectacular that year, and Atlanta is struggling to move the ball, struggling to move the ball. But then here comes Matty Ice at the end of this game. He drives them all the way down the field to the goal line. They've got a shot to win this game and go to play the Minnesota Vikings if the Vikings win the following day. And he rolls out and he's looking in the back of the end zone. It's like the goal line version of the Dwight Clark catch. He throws it up to the very back of the end zone to the best receiver in the NFL, and Julio Jones mistimes the jump, and it goes through his hands, and the Atlanta Falcons lose that game. That right there is a defining moment of this entire 2017 season as a whole, because if he catches that ball, I think the Minnesota Vikings end up going to the Super Bowl.
0: Yeah, I mean because the you know the Falcons were a team that the Vikings matched up really well with. Um, sort of, I I think about that drive a lot too because that Falcons team I thought you know was is such an interesting group because I thought fundamentally they were as good as they were when they made the Super Bowl, but just you know on the field you know they had the most drops in the NFL on third down uh, as a percentage of of catchable balls uh, in 2017. You know, Matt Ryan goes from 30 something touchdowns to 20. Uh, even on that, but then, you know, that was the year that Shanahan left and they, they replaced him with, uh um Uh, Sarkeesian, and he just didn't have the juice. I mean, they ran a shovel pass to Teron Ward, I believe, on the second down play (laughs) of that drive, their third best running back. And just none of that made sense. And ultimately, you know, when you when you cross the street that many times, eventually you get hit by a car. And I think that that was kind of what ended up happening to the Falcons. Um, You know, they, they were good enough to, you know, obviously come out of Philadelphia to win. They were favored to win in that game. Uh, You know, which is strange considering that the the Eagles were the number one seed, Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, it just wasn't to be for them, despite a really good defensive effort on their part. Uh, and you know, like like you said, the one last drive that they had.
1: And I will admit to being about as wrong as I have ever been in my entire life about this situation. Because when the Eagles won that game, my opinion was this is great for the Vikings' chances to go to the Super Bowl because they're facing Nick Foles and not Matt Ryan. And what I didn't properly factor was how difficult it is to go to Philadelphia and how good their defense was, how stacked they were. Aside from maybe an outside corner or two, they were a very, very dangerous defense, and especially on grass, on the road, and everything that Doug Peterson was dialing up was working at that point. But my thought was the Atlanta Falcons are... Just getting their legs here a little bit and getting back to where they were as a Super Bowl team in terms of their offense. And Matt Ryan is not a quarterback that I would want to face in terms of uh, you know a playoff game, as opposed to Nick Foles, who had had, you know, one good year in his career, even toward the end of that season, he wasn't particularly good. And in this game, he was not particularly good to beat the Atlanta Falcons. So my opinion was go to Philadelphia, face a quarterback who is a pure backup with your number one defense, beat the tar out of them and go to the Super Bowl. And of course we know that didn't happen, which we will get into. So a very interesting and compelling playoffs to get to the point of January 14th at us bank stadium. And now speaking of takes that didn't work Work out or thoughts at the time that turned out to be very, very different. The Vikings get up 17 to zero in the Minneapolis miracle game. And we never really remember this because of just how it ended, but they start off the game and they drive right down and they score a touchdown, Jarek McKinnon, a 14 yard run and, and they're, and they're rolling. And Drew Brees is struggling off the, off the bat in this game and the Vikings defense, gets three straight punts, and then two interceptions. That's the first five drives by the New Orleans Saints, and then they miss a field goal after that. So you're thinking, this is, this is it for the Vikings, that, that they are going into halftime, 17 nothing, and all they have to do is hold a lead. They had been tremendous at holding leads all year long. There was no reason to think they were going to fall apart. But then the throw that Mike Zimmer had prophesized earlier in the season Is that the right word? I think it is. Uh, He had talked about Keenum is too risky. He loves to just throw it up there and hope for his wide receiver to catch it. And he tosses it up and it is intercepted that kicks off the comeback by the New Orleans Saints. Tell me what you remember about that game to that point or what stuck out to you to the point where uh, it starts to turn on that interception by Case Keenum.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you watch, you know, the... uh, all of Vikings history, you know, nothing is ever easy, right? And and the the one the one game that I remember the, in the playoffs that actually was was in 2009 in Favre's first year with the Vikings, where they beat the Tar out of the Dallas Cowboys at home. Uh, I think it was like 33-3 or something like that. And um, that the Saints game was starting to feel like that. It was you know their first it, that ended up being their next playoff win for the Vikings and. And that, that's kind of how it felt. Everything went right. They got Breeze, who, you know, back in the day it was Romo. In this case it was Breeze. They had a great quarterback. They had him playing like like crap. He, You know, we talk about how his deep ball isn't good enough anymore. I mean, he tried to throw that ball over Sandejo's head, uh, and, and it woefully short uh, on a play like that. So I thought, you know, it was one of those where it's like, well, this seems too good to be true. Uh, you know, it's way too easy for them right now. Uh, and of course, as you said, it only takes one play uh, and then when, a, you know, a, and it kind of snowballs because they had the block punt and they had, you know, um, you know, sort of other circumstances there. It only takes a play or two uh, before, you know, it really, you know, the, the the worm starts to turn and that's really what happened to the
1: Vikings. Yeah. And there are, like you said, dozens and dozens of those moments throughout Minnesota Vikings history. And that interception for me is one of the glaring ones of how we get to the point of Stefan Diggs running into the end zone and throwing his helmet. But the Saints did get themselves together uh, early in the third quarter. They had an 80 yard touchdown drive and you felt like, all right, you're going to have to take this seriously. You're going to have to still get more offense out of this because that is indeed still drew Brees. Then the interception comes and breeze quickly makes you pay for it. Just like, boom, uh, he scores a, a touchdown in, let's see, I've got the time here in a minute and nine seconds. Just like, okay, over scores, a touchdown. And now we've got a, a, a really tight ball game. So the Vikings get a field goal back and they're sustaining this lead, but Everything is starting to become extremely tense. And this fourth quarter is as good of a fourth quarter as you will ever see in any NFL game in the history of the National Football League. So we've got the Vikings uh, give up a touchdown to Michael Thomas in which, by the way, uh, Anderson Deho gets hurt, which would be a key in Philadelphia that we'll talk about. But Anderson Deho gets hurt. Xavier Rhodes feels like there was a dirty play in which... Sandejo got knocked out so what does Drew Brees do the very next play go after Xavier Rhodes and I'm not sure that he's ever been the same since this game because they started to attack Rhodes because it seemed like he was sort of off of his game and he wasn't mentally as focused as he needed to be and then we've got ourselves a tight ball game all of a sudden just like that it's 17-14 the Vikings get a field goal and then it's 20-14 and then we have uh, let's see, I'll have to find exactly when this was because the, there's a the blocked punt in the middle of this is one of those classic Vikings moments where the, the backup long snapper who had come to Minnesota after Kevin McDermott got hurt, Jeff Overbaugh, goes the wrong way trying to block someone. They come in, they block the punt, and it sets up another score for New Orleans. And, and there just couldn't be, Eric, anything more Vikings-y than getting your Punt blocked, and and uh, let's see, so that would have been, yeah, with five minutes left in the fourth quarter, getting your punt blocked, and that led to the go-ahead score by Drew Brees with three minutes left on a throw that is one of the best I've ever seen in my entire life of all the games I've ever covered to Elvin Kamara over Eric Hendricks. And it just, like, if you're a Vikings fan in the stands, you're going, this this is how we're going to lose because of a blocked punt? Are you kidding me?
0: Right. It was a, you know, here we go again, sort of situation, um, for the, for the purple and what was great. And I think this is why, you know, we've always said, okay, yeah, I remember talking to you during the course of the season. Okay. When is, when is the, when is the other shoe going to drop for Kina? it you know, when is it over? When do they turn back to Bradford or when do they turn back to Teddy when he's healthy and, to Keenum's credit, he always came back from these things, yep. except for in the NFC title game. Because you look at the following drive after uh, you know New Orleans takes the lead, um, and he throws <laughs> what what has to be one of the you know Thielen and Diggs are running wide open all season in a in a play where Lattimore really does have Thielen covered well. He throws a perfect kind of rainbow pass uh, on a second and ten to get them you know, more or less into field goal range. Uh And then of, of course, Kai Forbath hits what should have been, you know, probably the, the most clutch kick in the history of the Vikings franchise.
1: Yes. A 53 yarder. Now, before that though, the play before that I want to focus on here because you mentioned that everything came up Keenum for that entire season. And this drive was a great example of everything coming up Keenum because yes, Thielen makes one of the great catches of his career on that play and also gets interfered with, and I think Marshawn Lattimore was called for both pass interference and holding on that play, and Adam Thielen still comes down with a 24-yard catch. But then, right before the field goal on 3rd and 5, Keenum gets pressured and heaves the ball in the direction of Kyle Rudolph and Marcus Williams, who would be the GOAT of this game and not in a good way, Marcus Williams comes within inches of intercepting this pass and think about what we would have said if case Keenan with a minute 40 left in this game infield goal position had heaved up a senseless pass with almost no chance of completing it and marcus williams had picked it off we would have said that's the one that's the pass that Mike Zimmer was talking about all year. Why didn't they play Teddy? Why didn't they play? I think Sam Bradford was maybe back by then, or, or maybe he didn't come back until the Eagles game, but why didn't they play Teddy earlier in the season? You knew this was coming. Like, I, I think about how different things would have been. And even for Marcus Williams, of course for him, because that play, the Minneapolis miracle will haunt him forever. And if he intercepts that it's that close, it's so close to Marcus Williams, picking it off that even in the box score, the pass is, is defined as being defended by Marcus Williams. It was that close. And then, as you mentioned, Kai Forbath, who came out of nowhere pretty much for the Vikings the year before after Blair Walsh had gone in the tank, comes up with the definitive field goal in Vikings history, or it would have been if not for what played out next. So we go to the next drive. And this is, again, I just cannot tell you how in awe of Drew Brees I was covering this game. Because the noise is as loud as I've ever heard it in an NFL stadium, including being in New Orleans for the playoffs last year. And he just starts going to work. They get the ball at the 25 and immediately he throws a a pass to somebody named Josh Hill, 18 yards, Ted Ginn, 11 yards. But then the Vikings slow him down. They get him to fourth down. And this pass will forever stick out in my mind, Eric. Fourth down, and he hits Willie Sneed for 13 yards right in front of Mackenzie Alexander. Under pressure, pocket collapsing. And this is why you are one of the great quarterbacks in history. Because 99% of people fold in this situation. And Breeze threw a dime to Willie Sneed to set up the potential game-winning score. But the problem was, all of a sudden at that point, Sean Payton got nervous. They throw two short passes... And then on third and one handed off up the middle to Elvin Kamara, who's stuffed by uh, Brian Robinson and Anthony Harris. And I'll never understand it, Eric. You have third and one. You're in field goal position. You have the greatest quarterback ever. And he never turns the ball over. And yet, you decide to go with a handoff up the middle against the Vikings team that had had maybe the best defense on third and short in the NFL. Linval Joseph is dominating for this season, and that—if there's one thing that is not the miracle play that has to keep Sean Payton up at night still, it has to be this decision to handoff up the middle against this Vikings team with 33 seconds left on third and one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know when you think about. You know, it's things teams pra- must have practiced, right? It's we need to pick up a yard to extend because basically you're just, you're burying Minnesota in that sense. And they couldn't, and it was, you know, execution, but also, you know, was Camara really, you know, you had Ingram, was Camara really the running back you wanted in that spot type of thing. Um, But yeah, it was, it was head scratching. And, you know, from the perspective of somebody, you know, if you were rooting for the saints, like probably the, you know, the kiss of death, given, you know, all the things that had happened to you during the course of that game, uh, it kind of, you know, a field goal is like a participation trophy in some sense. And, and I think, you know, even though you made it, you probably didn't feel great, uh, you know, sort of about what was upcoming.
1: No, but your chances are still probably very, very high to win the game at that point, because, the Vikings have 25 seconds left of the ball at the 25. And this is something that I forgot about. Mike Remmers jumps offside. And so now you're back at the 20. And, and you're going, all right, what are the odds at the, now? And I started myself in the press box writing, Case Keenum leads a miracle drive for the Vikings to win. Because I thought no one in Vikings land on Twitter or whatever is going to read my article if they lose because they're going to be so mad that the Vikings not only blew a 17 point lead from a comedy of errors with the interception and the block punt, but also the number one defense in the NFL at home gave up a fourth down and 10 pass that that would be talked about for the rest of time and had that not happened had the miracle not happened the narrative on Mike Zimmer is probably quite a bit different And I don't think he makes it through the 2018 season with all the strife that went on from that year. I don't think that he makes it through that season because he would have been so criticized for his defense blowing a 17 point lead in this game to Drew Brees at home. So Remmers jumps offside and then a pass that we all forget about, but a good one, a 19 yard catch by Stefan Diggs that sets up the third timeout by the Vikings. And you've got one last shot at it. And here, here it comes just throws it up to Stefan Diggs. And that is the way I would define the entire 2017 run by Case Keenum is throw it up to Diggs, throw it up to Thielen and see what happens. And I will say this, Eric, there is a lot of value in that mentality. And we really saw it here because there are certain quarterbacks who have played for the Minnesota Vikings recently who might not just heave it up. They might just check it down and see what happens. And instead 61 yard touchdown, Diggs throws the helmet. Caleb Jones of all people is the first guy to get to him. He was a practice squad player, grabs him. They maul him in the end zone. And then we waited forever for them to clear the field, do the extra point ceremony. And we go to the locker room and it's madness. Tell me what your feeling was watching the Minneapolis miracle play.
0: (laughs) It's, it was strange because I was, I was actually uh, out of town with some family members who, and, and and my parents and, uh, And I I had actually with my colleague, George Shahuri we had written up that the uh, that the Saints would cover five points, which which was sort of. And so at that point, you know, you're less of a fan. You're more sort of thinking about uh, wanting to be right about a game. And so, you know, the sort of me thinking, okay, you know, my parents are still Vikings fans. okay, hopefully they get down and get a field goal. Diggs turns the corner and and goes to score a touchdown, and I'm adding up the points in my head, and I'm thinking it's exactly five points. <laughs> and so and so I'm sitting here wondering what they're going to do with the extra point. Are they going to cover the spread? Are they going to push? Uh, and and I'm just thinking to myself. And then one of my best friends that I grew up with, who's a Vikings fan as well, called me, and I'm just thinking like this never happens to the Minnesota Vikings. Right. Um. So it was it was one of those surreal moments where you're just like you know, wow, you know, you know, you and I are, you work do this professionally. So we were not as big of fans in some sense, but it's like, sometimes it's just cool to sort of let your guard down a little bit and be like, wow, that was pretty
1: awesome. In my brain, I remember it sort of slow motion because I like to on given plays, look at the secondary and see what's going on in the secondary as a play develops. And I recall looking back and saying, why aren't there more people back there? Because there was only one option on this play, and it was to throw it downfield. And they were playing, I just think, like a regular cover two. And uh, you're saying, well, why? Why aren't there more people back there? And as the ball went up, Marcus Williams is coming so fast. I was looking at him. He was coming so fast that it sort of, in the moment, went through my brain like, boy, he's going to hit him really hard. And then he just launches his body and completely misses. I'll never fully understand either one of those things I'll never understand why there weren't more people deep I think maybe they were afraid of the field goal because Kai Forbath had just hit a 53 yarder so they were afraid of catching a ball getting a little yards after catch getting out of bounds and having a game-winning field goal so they wanted to make sure that their coverage was a little tighter but it eventually cost them and then I go into the locker room Eric and I've never seen anything like this and I'll never see anything like it again just tears everywhere guys couldn't talk they couldn't explain what just happened uh, i remember trying to ask several players about the third down and one stop because of how important it was and they didn't remember that it happened and uh, the one that will stick out in my mind forever is going up to harrison smith and asking him about this and harrison saying i mean we got a game next week so we just you know we got to get ready for that and there was there was no emotion whatsoever on his face <laughs> it's like they call they call him the hitman for a reason right i mean it, he was the only player that wasn't just completely overwhelmed. And uh, I have a picture still in my phone of Brian Robinson sitting at his locker with his head down with his son in his lap, uh, just overcome with emotion. And uh, I'll never see anything like that ever again. And I, I think Eric, that it is the greatest play in Minnesota Vikings history.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not old enough to remember the, you know, the Super Bowls or, you know, them getting, you know, eh, but in my lifetime, um, yeah, you know the onside kick against the against the Giants in '97 was certainly something that, again, one of those this this good stuff never happens in the <laughs> Right? Mike's yes. Moment. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, I, I think. Um, you know, there were there was always these plays where you think, okay, if they if this would have resulted in a win, you could put that. I mean, Matthew Hatchett had, had a touchdown against the Falcons that probably that almost put the game away, and then of course they they came back and lost that game. Um, but as far as plays that won them games i mean the kyle rudolph catch in the, this past season against new orleans uh in overtime that might be you know in, a, in the top 10 but nothing i think will top Stephon Diggs, uh you know touchdown and, and the the grabbing you know victory from the hands of defeat because they were behind before the play and they ended up winning as a result unlike a lot of those other plays
1: and and the fact that it's a walk-off too it's not just a in the same way for kyle rudolph in new orleans for sure but coming from 61 yards away. Uh, truly incredible. Now, that following week, uh, there was so much media attention for the Vikings that we had to set up an alternate like side press area and there was a little room that you could go into to do phone interviews. And almost every 15 minutes, I was doing another phone interview about the Minneapolis Miracle. I was on in Vancouver three different times. <laughs> and just uh, all sorts of calls from uh, the, America and Canada uh, wanting someone to talk about this play. So it really took over the entire sports landscape. And I recall the team talking about, yes, we have to move on from this. We have to stop talking about this. And it was said later that the team had a terrible week of practice and they just couldn't get themselves focused on the Eagles. Now, I think that's a little bit of hindsight because I've heard of other teams having bad weeks of practice and going out there and and winning games easily. So uh, it's a little bit of, well, see, we were overcome with emotion and things like that. I have never bought into that fully. Now, I think it is tough for sure to win a game like that and then go on the road the following week, but still, you're the number one defense in the NFL. You're 13-3, and and you have a whole week to prepare. It's not like it was a short week or anything. I don't really buy into that excuse, especially because of the way that it started in Philadelphia. Now, let me say before that the atmosphere in Philadelphia goes under the category of unlike anything I've ever seen in my life, Vikings fans having full beers thrown at them and just complete pandemonium. The game didn't start till later on in the evening, and those Philadelphia fans had gotten there very early in the morning. So it was a serious advantage for the Eagles in the home field situation, plus the fact that it was on grass. But, Eric, that game starts off with Case Keenum throwing a perfect pass to Kyle Rudolph for a 25-yard touchdown and leading – just an awesome drive, and when that happened, when Rudolph catches the touchdown, I think that I, I looked at Judd Zolgad and said, "I think we're going to have to cover the Super Bowl at home."
0: Well, yeah, and that was that was a great drive. I think Latavius Murray had a couple nice runs as well, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. And then um, not only that, but the f- subsequent drive for Philadelphia. I think Nick Foles threw a perfect pass to Stephen Bur- or uh, not Stephen Burton. That was a former Viking, but uh, Trey Burton. And he jumped when he didn't have to and landed around a foot out of bounds. And so the Vikings not only had a 7 nothing lead, they had the ball. Uh, and um, we all know what happened after that when uh, you know Keenum threw the ball to Patrick Robinson. And that was kind of how everything snowballed.
1: Well, and, and the, there's a couple of things that play into that. So, yes, Keenum throws the interception to Patrick Robinson. He brings it back for a 50-yard touchdown. And then everything just starts to collapse. But the offensive line being banged up, not having Nick Easton there, having Mike Remmers playing left guard instead of right tackle where he had been pretty solid, Rashad Hill playing right tackle against a defensive line that was absolutely dominant that season – The amount of pressure on Case Keenum in this game was more than any other game that he had faced the entire year, and it's not even close. And it was very clear that that was going to be a problem. And on that Patrick Robinson interception, I think the ball was touched or tipped ever so slightly that led it to be so underthrown for Patrick Robinson to jump up and intercept it. You're still at 7-7, but that was... If you're at home, maybe you go, all right, let's just pick it back up and go. On the road, there was a different feeling. Of All right, now everything is going to go Philadelphia's way. I'm not a huge believer in momentum, but you could feel it at that point. And the following drive, uh, that's when things start to come apart for the Vikings defense. They actually got through the first quarter playing pretty solid uh, in terms of their defensive play. But that's when... Doug Peterson takes over, Nick Foles takes over and just starts to annihilate this Vikings defense. And I don't know if you felt this way, Eric, but I know that Judd Zolgad has brought it up before and, and I can buy this, that the second half of the Saints game, the defense just wasn't what it was. And it seemed like Doug Peterson had all sorts of answers. It wasn't just Nick Foles, pure dumb luck, that they were moving the ball after the first quarter so consistently that it seemed like they had intel or an understanding of Zimmer's rules on defense that they could take advantage of. And then there was no stopping the Eagles offense after that.
0: Yeah, and and this might be another reason why, you know, if you're a Vikings fan, you probably would have preferred playing you know, a team like the Saints to a team like Carolina, but a, a, a big reason why the Eagles put a hurting on the, on the Vikings was they were physical and the Vikings defense every single good Vikings defense in the history of the franchise has been a good defense because they were fast and not because they were big and strong uh, and, and including the 2017 group. And that's when you see, you know, you look at like the drive subsequent to this, you're talking about a 13 yard run by JHI, a seven yard run by JHI, like, I'll, you know, Uh, Zach Ertz making plays is sort of a bigger player and you know that the physicality the lack of physicality on the defense relative to how good they were in coverage really opened things up I think for the stuff over the top and you know to again to the point about you know sort of not being able to uh you know you know stay healthy Xavier Rhodes missed a significant amount of that game as you said Andrew Sadejo was hurt for much of that time so it was one of those where I think the Vikings weaknesses got exposed pretty explicitly.
1: No, that's right. And uh, also on the defensive line, the whole season long, they had been in quarterbacks faces. And this Eagles offensive line, you would put them up against maybe not quite the early 90s Dallas Cowboys, but almost any other offensive line in history. Jason Peters, Lane Johnson, Jason Kelsey, uh, they're just playing as well as anybody. And they were fully healthy that year. They haven't been since. Uh, in Philadelphia. But at that point, no, actually, I think that Jason Peters had gotten hurt. So aside, aside from Jason Peters being out, their offensive line was just monstrous and the Vikings couldn't put pressure on Nick Foles. And you guys at Pro Football Focus have shown very clearly how quarterbacks perform when they're not pressured at all. And the, the touchdown to Elshon Jeffrey is one where Nick Foles has all day. I think there's a little bit of initial pressure, but he ends up spending five, six, seven seconds before he launches the ball to Elshon Jeffrey for a 53-yard touchdown. And if the Vikings' defense wasn't going to get any pressure, and as you mentioned, Xavier Rhodes uh, was hurt in this game, and Andrew Sedeo hurt in this game. And then something else happens too along the way that uh, Pat Elfline suffers a very serious ankle injury, and he has never recovered from that ankle injury, but they were already banged up on the offensive line. Then it got worse. They couldn't run the ball at all with their backup offensive lineman in, and then it just continued to snowball and snowball, and it, we knew it was officially over when the Vikings were down 24-7, to and right away the Eagles come out in the second half and throw a 41-yard touchdown to Torrey Smith. But I always wonder this, Eric. Sam Bradford is healthy at that moment. He's the backup quarterback. Teddy Bridgewater, I recall, uh, being pretty upset that he was not the backup quarterback for that game after being the backup for such a long time. But Bradford was the backup. Do you think that they should have put in Sam Bradford, considering how well he had played in week one? I know he had been out for pretty much the whole rest of the season, but if he was healthy enough to play down 24 to seven, or if they should have just said, well, Keenum has had this magic. Maybe there's something left there because it always stuck with me that if you were going to do it, that was the time to do it because there was nothing to lose.
0: Yeah. The only issue that I would have is that Bradford was never much of a comeback, you know, kind of guy, right? right? And so Keenum was, you know, Bradford was so much more talented than Keenum. and, And so, and frankly, I think so much more talented than Bridgewater. Um, But he had been the backup the week before in New Orleans. He was the backup there. So he was clearly physically ready. Uh, And at that point, you you sort of had to think to yourself, Keenum had never brought the Vikings back from this much. Uh, You know, it was always, you know, small one-off sort of plays, uh, you know, where he came back from. So maybe there was an opportunity for him uh, you know, you put Bradford in there, see what you ha- see what you have. I mean, the only issue I would have said was there, as you said, the offensive line, the protection was so bad. In the prior year, in 2016, when they started five and zero, they went to Philly, and it would it became pretty apparent that Bradford was going to crumble if you if you didn't protect it very well. Yep. Uh, and probably the same thing would have happened, but you know, hindsight's 2020. You know we could look back and say, well, you know, at least they would have given themselves a chance because Keenum really wasn't
1: right. Yeah. That was the magic running out for case Keenum. And I guess that's why I always thought of it is, Hey, you know, maybe Bradford chips away at it. Maybe he's just, you know, because he was accurate and they would have been playing off and you have a lot of time left. There was 10 minutes and five seconds left in the game or in the third quarter. So you have almost two whole quarters when Torrey Smith scores that touchdown. I mean, maybe I don't know. You're way down. Your chances are almost nothing anyway, but if you're going to do it, it's probably the more talented quarterback. I'm not saying I criticize Mike Zimmer for this. It's just something that has always sort of stuck in my mind that I wonder if at halftime they went in and said, does anybody think we should put in Sam Bradford? Because why not? And we also knew that the Sam Bradford era was over too that because of his injuries that they were not going to re-sign him and make him their starting quarterback, that the knee had just gotten to the point where you couldn't trust him for a full season and sign him to a contract extension. One last roll of the dice with Sam Bradford. It, I'm certain it wouldn't have meant much considering how well that Philadelphia defense was playing and Nick Foles continued to move the ball and score. It's just one of those side notes that I have of, well, you never know with that one. Now, here's my question for you, Eric. Did you think at this moment when the Vikings are getting run off the field by the Philadelphia Eagles that that was going to be the peak of the Mike Zimmer era that they would never return to the NFC championship and and we'll see, you know, going forward. But uh, because I did and I didn't, I kind of thought this was a miracle season. Everything went your way but i don't know what's coming in the future is teddy coming back and this team still has so much talent from top to bottom i did not walk out of there thinking well this is the kind of the last we'll see of the minnesota vikings as a competitor under mike zimmer
0: yeah it's a great question i mean i think the following season i you know was advocating that the vikings wouldn't you know get their season win total i was very down on the cousin signing Um, but obviously we didn't know that the the cousin signing was going to happen right after this game. So, you know, I think, I think a lot of people, I was advocating for sort of a Bridgewater and McCown strategy, uh, which I think, you know, would have probably worked out a little bit better just from a cost benefit analysis, given where the Vikings, uh, roster currently is. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look at that defense from top to bottom, probably the most talented the NFL at the time. Uh, but we, we also, you know, I think both of us were pretty woken to the fact that, you know, defense isn't all that sustainable. Jacksonville was the number one defense that year, along with Minnesota. And both of those defenses now are kind of a shell of themselves just two and a half years later. Um, and, and so I, there was always the question mark at quarterback. And there was always this idea, I think, from at least people, you know, you, you, you said this the other day, and I think it was kind of funny. There were people who were on the let's start Keenum for forever and ever. Amen. Side. Uh, They were clearly wrong, but uh, there was also, you know, that doesn't mean that signing Kirk was the right decision either. And and so they were, I was always a little bit, uh, you know, uh, skeptical of them just because I didn't know how they were going to handle the QB situation. Uh, And I think we were, you know, sort of right there because, you know, as good as Kirk has been at times, he's, his limitations have certainly shown shown out uh when it's mattered the most.
1: And and what another thing that we just maybe undervalued in terms of how much it meant to winning in the future was your offensive coordinator who had just hit every nail on the head for the entire season. And maybe it's Pat Shurmur's best year and he never would have been as good again, but that offense really worked for a lot of people. Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen namely, but also Kyle Rudolph was very successful in that offense. The running backs were very successful. And then because the Vikings, and this is the main point that I want to make about the post-script here, the 2017 season is over, is that the Vikings made every move in reaction to what happened in Philadelphia and in reaction to the 2017 season and believing that they were an NFC championship or Super Bowl caliber team. And panicked defines a number of their moves or just maybe not fully thought out because they had one thing in mind. It was, we were so close and now we need to do everything we can to get back. And signing Kirk cousins is one of those things. It's not about Kirk cousins as a quarterback. He's a very good quarterback who certainly puts you in playoff contention with his play on a year to year basis. He did in Washington and he has in Minnesota. But it was about how much you're spending with the amount of players that you also need to sign and and how that will eventually be a problem for you. And then there was the hiring of John Dean Filippo, which you can never convince me would have happened if the Vikings beat the Philadelphia Eagles that day. There is no chance they're hiring John Dean Filippo because his offense was so much different than what had just worked for the Vikings. And some things were clearly not thought through quite as well. So you make these moves that are sort of desperate to get back to where you just were. And it eventually comes back to haunt you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the, and that's been like the, the one steadiness in Minnesota has been the fact that there's always been change, right? There's always, this is, I believe the fifth offensive coordinator in as many years for the Vikings. Uh, you know, this, this is the, you know, third or fourth quarterback in the Zimmer era. Uh, you know the defense has been the one constant thing, and now we're seeing an entirely new secondary uh, turning over. So, man, it, it's yeah. It, it, this was, I think, in, you know, sadly, and and the Vikings seem to have this one time every single decade. You know, in 19, I think it was 88. That was the team that probably should have won the Super Bowl. 98, that team should have won the Super Bowl. 09, that team should. 17, that team probably should have won the Super Bowl, and. Every single mistake the Vikings have made subsequent to that from the Herschel Walker trade in 99 to signing Randall Cunningham to a huge deal in in 1999 to bringing Brett Favre back to signing Kirk Cousins has been chasing something that you should have just, you know, cut your losses at the time and said, this was our chance. We didn't get it. Let's rebuild.
1: And you sign almost every player to a huge contract. And of course, you know, after that Stefan Diggs is very well deserving of that big contract, but When Anthony Barr comes back after the 2018 season on a preposterous deal for what he brings to the table, and again, he's a good player, but he's not worth that much money and that much of a cap hit, it it was a reaction to that, to say, we've got to keep this defense together. That's what's going to get us back to the NFC Championship, and the Cousins deal is at the very center of that. There were a lot of options, a lot of different directions they could have gone, but they went the most expensive and the most uh option that i think made it difficult to get any farther because also as much as kirk cousins is a better talent than Case Keenum. You need what Case Keenum brought to you in 2017 to get anywhere, and Case, Ke- I'm sorry, Kirk Cousins doesn't really have it. Now, Keenum could not have sustained it. I'm certain of that. Based on what he did in Denver, what he did in Washington, he was not going to get you back to 13-3. and But there is an element of Case Keenum that is required that I think that uh, Kirk Cousins doesn't have, whether it's a pocket presence or a willingness to take risks or just the belief and trust in Adam Thielen and Stefan Diggs. And then you go from there and, and Zimmer wants to get back to the Shermer. We're going to run first and run play action off it. But you alienate Stefan Diggs in the process, which ultimately leads to him being traded and everything. All roads lead back to this Philadelphia loss In my mind, and I think it put them in a very tough position to ever be a great team again under Mike Zimmer. Unless, you know, of course, we've got years and years more after we're recording this and it ends up being that way. But that's one of the most fascinating things that I find about this is they didn't factor in how quickly defenses fall apart. They didn't factor in what it would eventually mean to sign a quarterback that expensive and and they didn't factor in what John D Filippo was bringing as such a very different offensive mind from what they had just had that worked so well and they forced their players the following season to learn an entire new offense that was completely different language and checks and changes and all those other things and and basically by the time you got onto the field in 2018 you were a a different football team and uh it really showed and they eventually go 8-7 and 1 and on and on from there. So, you know, it'll always be interesting to me, Eric, because so much luck had to play into the season, but it kind of does anytime you go 13 and three. Uh, But uh, the case Keenum element of it, the fact that the Vikings always do this with a quarterback that they can't really keep long-term, whether it's an old Favre or an old Cunningham or Wade Wilson, that's, you know, a, a career backup or case Keenum. And it's another one of those defining Viking things of their entire history as a team that every time they get that close, the reason they don't get right back is always because it's not like they have Patrick Mahomes to run back out there or they have, you know, Tom Brady or something else. And and I think that when you don't have that to make up for it, you end up with your one shot. And we've seen many teams get it, your one shot. And if you don't click on your one shot, if you come up short in an NFC championship game, you probably won't get another one for a long time.
0: Yeah and I you know that was you know we talked about leading up to this current Super Bowl with the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs and you know people were like well which team is this game more important to and I said to to your point entirely I think this game is more important to the San Francisco 49ers yep. because they they have that same mold defense middle of the pack quarterback uh, you know, coach who's hot right now in terms of scheme, you know, people always tend to catch up to the hot, you know, play caller type of thing. Whereas the chiefs are far more sustainable, brilliant head coach, great quarterback. And, and so when you look at, you know, now that the Niners have lost the Super Bowl, everybody, they're going to be chasing things. Right. And, 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 you know, and their fans are going to be consistently disappointed if they don't make it back. When in reality, no, your chance, you know, you, you got 11 at the blackjack table. You doubled down and you didn't win. That doesn't mean triple your next bet, right? That just means you had bad luck. It was, you had the best of it, and it was bad luck. And that, to me, that's always a story of the Vikings franchise basically my entire life. You look at 17, you look at 09, you look at 98, even like 88, 87, you know, those years. Like – it the, the wasn't sus- they weren't sustainably good, but they popped up and they, for whatever reason, just weren't able to take advantage of it, uh, and that hurt them for subsequent seasons.
1: And it tells you a lot about how sports is entirely expectation based. I mean, the everything, whether it's inside front offices or ownership or fans or media, it's all where we set the bar from you and what you did against that. Because if you look at the Mike Zimmer era, it's been very, very successful, a lot more wins than losses, a lot more good seasons with almost no season that you could say was bad. His first season was still pretty good considering what he was handed. Even the 2016 season overall is a 500 year. That happens all the time in the NFL when you get injuries. So there's no season where he could point to and go, what a disaster. And yet a loss in Santa Clara against the 49ers in the playoffs that was you know not a good game at all is a disaster for you when you have set the bar that high in the seasons following the Minneapolis Miracle and in 2017. And just to put a wrap on our entire series here, we might as well pour a little salt in the wound and talk about the fact that the Super Bowl was in Minnesota. Of all things, of all things in the world that Vikings fans must have known was coming, you were that close to playing the first Super Bowl at home ever, and the Philadelphia Eagles not only win it, but they run the Philly special play that had come against you years before with Matt Barkley and the Chicago bears. They, they run it on your field against the Patriots in, in the most memorable play on your field in this, I think the same end zone, it just, everything lines up perfectly to just be painful for Vikings fans.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's kind of how it ends up going. Right. Um, You know, and um, that's, that, that it sucks. I mean, from the perspective of the NFL, it was one of the greatest Super Bowls I think in my lifetime. For sure, Nick yep. Foles coming, Nick Foles being a backup quarterback, and not just winning. You know, Hostetler won against the against the Bills in 1990, but it was different, right? They ran the ball, played really good defense, and he kind of took care of everything. I mean, Nick Foles went toe to toe with Tom Brady, and you know, and beat you know, took down Goliath in, in a in a way that you know, if you looked at you know it showed that the Vikings game was not just a fluke in that sense like he was able to do it against other teams as well but it was really one of the best uh games and you wonder to yourself okay if New England had put up 500 yards against Philly's defense and not punted what could they have done to Minnesota and would Case Keenum had been up for the challenge my guess would be no uh in which case it was probably for the best that we got you know philadelphia in that super bowl uh you know for the sake of entertainment
1: yeah it was uh, i will say when the vikings got up seven nothing just me sitting there in the press box thinking about how much work it was about to be to have the Vikings playing the first Super Bowl ever at home was was really daunting but i you're right i don't think that they win that Super Bowl and the home field advantage would not have been anything like that because the Super Bowls just they don't have all of your fans 60,000 of your fans stuffed into the stadium being as loud as they could possibly be so the advantage would not have been there and tom brady wouldn't have been shaken by it either they they probably do Uh, not win that Super Bowl. Still, that gives no solace to Vikings fans uh, after what happened in Philadelphia. So anyway, I appreciate everyone who has taken the time to join me, all the reporters uh, who have come on for this series, and everyone who has taken the time to listen. It's been super fun. So thank you so much, Eric, for coming on and spending uh, this time to talk about this crazy and wild playoffs that is one of the most memorable of our lifetimes.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was uh, it was fun to go through memory lane and, and remember a time when uh, you know Case Keenum took the took a Minnesota Vikings team to the NFC Championship game.